0: It's Monday, May 6th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Tentative date set. House Democrats are eyeing a May 15th date for Robert Mueller to testify and set the record straight on Bill Barr's rollout of his report on the Trump administration. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for all the fallout from the Attorney General's hearing last week and a new poll that shows voters are loving what the president is doing with the economy. Next, the e-scooter craze is continuing to take over cities across the country. But while these scooters can be fun to ride, it's important to take proper safety precautions. A new study is shedding light on how many people are getting injured while riding. E-scooter use results in 20 injuries per 100,000 rides. And with 38.5 million trips taken last year, those injuries can pile up quickly. Andrew Hawkins, transportation reporter at The Verge, joins us for why you should always wear a helmet when scooter riding. Finally, we've all heard the stories of the decline of the American mall, empty stores, and declining sales. But there might be some good news on the horizon. If millennials tried to kill the mall, Gen Z might be the ones to save it. Companies are starting to target them with Instagram-worthy displays and in-house customization options. Jordan Holman, retail reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us for the future of the mall. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. 5.8 million new jobs since
1: Election Day, 263,000 jobs in the month of April alone, the lowest unemployment rate since 19... 1969. The American economy is roaring. Joining
0: us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Let's get a little look back to what happened last week with Attorney General Bill Barr. Right off the bat, I mean, he testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee. It was pretty tense. At the very end of it, all sorts of Democrats were saying he lied, they were calling for his resignation. How do you think his performance went last week?
1: I think it was viewed as a success by Republicans and a success by Democrats, depending on what side you were on. Democrats felt that they got Barr to make a couple of omissions that they wanted, things like Kamala Harris, getting him to say he hadn't looked at any of the underlying evidence in the Mueller report that he hadn't, as he admitted to Amy Klobuchar, been willing before that to work on some legislation that had to deal with election interference. But Republicans also felt that he held his own, that he didn't give anything up, that he was able to answer every question and that he really provided an unwavering defense of the president that Trump was happy with at the end of the day.
0: Democrats gave the attorney general a deadline for today to give them the full Mueller report unredacted. I mean, I don't really think that's going to happen. (laughs) They're saying that they might hold him in contempt of Congress, all this stuff. What does that mean? What does being held in contempt of Congress mean?
1: It means very little. We can remember that Eric Holder was held in contempt of Congress, the former attorney general under Barack Obama. That didn't result in any charges or anything even a fine, a judge refused to hold it up. He was refusing at that time to overturn documents. There's little that can be done to sort of compel the other side. Now, it could be that a judge does compel him to turn over the report, but it's not likely that they're going to lock him up in Congress jail, which there is one, which hasn't really ever been used.
0: <laughs> a House Democrat on Sunday said that there's a tentative date for Robert Mueller to testify before Congress. They're looking at May 15th. It's not fully confirmed yet. But if that happens, that'll be another uh, day of fireworks, one of these congressional testimonies. What are they expecting to get from Mueller?
1: There's two things that they want from Mueller. One, for him to sort of vocalize what they understood he wrote in a letter to Bill Barr that he did not agree with the four-page summary that the attorney general put out And second, Democrats really want to understand his thinking first on his decision to not press President Trump to sit down for an interview and second, to not make a recommendation as to whether or not he should be prosecuted. There's some reading between the lines by Democrats that they think that Mueller was hinting at them that they should move forward with impeachment. And they think that asking him in a room, that question might provide some more clarity and less need to to sort of read between those lines.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the ongoing fight between between the White House and Democrats. The oversight committees are launching all sorts of investigations. They want his tax returns. There's just a lot of things going on. And here's the observation from the Associated Press. They say the rejection of oversight is the latest and perhaps most high-profile example of the new normal in the Trump era. There's no more White House press briefings, daily White House press briefings. A lot of top department vacancies are unfilled. So that leaves fewer officials to respond to a lot of these congressional requests. And a lot of these agencies are just more insular than before. What is going on between these two parties right here, between the White House and Democrats? You know,
1: we've seen past administrations face a lot of inquiry from Congress. Normally what they do is they say, sure, yeah, we'll go along with this. And then they go real slow. It takes a long time (laughs) to get any documents. And this administration is like, nope, we're not going to, we're not going to. They've said no to everything. Yeah everything, right? So this is a big departure from what we've seen past administrations do when they don't like what Congress is asking them to produce. You could see the courts brought in to referee sort of say, all right, guys, everyone has to play by the rules. But there is just a sense in this administration, in this White House, that they don't have to do anything they don't want to do, that no one can make them, and that they're fine the way they are. So they don't need to name officials, and they can have people acting roles. And when significant chunk of the cabinet isn't confirmed, they think that's okay. Trump saying last year that he gave him more flexibility to have acting cabinet secretaries. That brought a lot of criticism that he sort of was avoiding the approval process of the Senate. But we see this as as an ongoing trend in this administration.
0: And in the meantime, the president does continue to win with the economy. There was a new poll out that just came out from uh, the Wall Street Journal and NBC News. They found that his handling of the economy is getting very good marks. The interesting note is that while the majority of people still disapprove of his job performance overall, they are giving him credit for the economy. 51% of Americans disapprove of his overall job. But 51% also approve of his handling of the economy. So he's still winning on that, even though overall people are not liking you know, everything that he's doing.
1: President Trump's theory of re-election is have unemployment below 4%, have GDP growth every quarter, that voters will reward him even if they don't like him. They'll say that it risks too much to change leadership with the economy as the way that it is. And now Democrats are hoping that voters say Yeah, the economy is great and all, but everything else is just too much to bear. And it'll be a real test of of theories here as to which one we see voters respond with uh, next November.
0: Nancy Pelosi, for her part, says we need to own the center-left, own the mainstream. You know, she doesn't want the House to get bogged down with impeachment proceedings that will probably get crushed in the Senate because it's controlled by Republicans. So she wants to make sure that the candidates don't drift too far to the left at the risk of alienating people. And with the president having really good marks on the economy, I mean, that seems like a smart plan right there.
1: And we're going to see Democrats try to find another place to argue the economy. They're going to say that lower and lower middle class people have not seen wage growth, that the cost of living has gone up while their paychecks have not. Student loans, we see Elizabeth Warren talking about student debt, getting a lot of attention for that. There are other economic messages. But I think Pelosi is trying to say, look, guys, don't go feel like because you can't argue that the president has got a bad economy, that you need to go argue for something outside the mainstream of our party And, and telling them to stay on message, stay inside the mainstream, because they're worried that sort of those middle voters, those voters who may have voted for Barack Obama and then voted for Donald Trump or those voters who reluctantly voted for Donald Trump and may now be exhausted by the chaos and the scandal and the tweeting, that they're going to lose them given the choice between that and and an option that they think is just too radical on the left.
0: Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: How people were being injured as they were using these electric scooters. A lot of them were head injuries. 15% of the people that were injured received traumatic brain injuries. The best takeaway from all of this is that people really need to wear helmets. Yes. I mean, it really cannot be said enough that if you're going to use one of these electric scooters, you really, really, really should take into account that you need a helmet.
0: Joining us is Andrew Hawkins, transportation reporter at The Verge. We're going to be talking about electric scooters I know these are a big point of contention for a lot of people in a lot of cities. For the most part, I feel like people who are wanting to get around the city actually do really like them. I know cities are bothered by them because they're left all over the place. We're talking about these dockless electric scooters. Sometimes they're thrown all over the place. And then there's those share of people that hate them and kick them down on the floor. But one of the things that we've always been curious about as these things gain in prominence, I mean, they're moving to cities all over the country is how often people get injured On these things. And there was just a study done with the Public Health and Transportation Department in Austin, Texas, in coordination with the CDC. And they've come out with a number that says there are 20 injuries per 100,000 trips. Tell us a little bit more about this, Andrew.
2: This is a pretty comprehensive look. What the researchers did in coordination with the folks in Austin, Texas, was they blocked out about a three-month period of time. They checked in with the emergency rooms, with local doctors, and sort of compartmentalized as many injuries as they could that they felt were associated with these electric scooters. They went in, they interviewed those people, and they got a pretty comprehensive look at what types of injuries they were talking about, where they were taking place, what time of day these injuries were taking place, to sort of get a better overall sense of how people were being injured as they were using these electric scooters. A lot of them were head injuries. 15% of the people that were injured received traumatic brain injuries. The best takeaway from all of this is that people really need to wear helmets. Yes. I mean, it really cannot be said enough that if you're going to use one of these electric scooters, you really, really, really should take into account that you need a helmet.
0: On the face of it, 20 injuries per 100,000 trips does not seem that bad, actually, though. I mean, that's a pretty decent number. If you're practicing safe measures, you're not really going to get hurt. As you said, chief among them is wearing a helmet. You got to have that. Uh, just for this. Well, is it to hear, Just
2: to interject, if you extrapolate that out, it doesn't sound that much on the surface. If you extrapolate that out, these companies, Bird, Lime, Jump, which is owned by Uber, Lyft, and, and, and a bunch of others, they do millions of trips all across the world. So what you're really talking about is not just 20 people, you're talking about thousands of people that are being injured. It's hard to get a truly comprehensive take on what that is, but if you if you take that section and, and blow it out and make some assumptions about it, it seems that there are probably a lot of more people that are getting injured using these than, than are not.
0: That is a very good point, and let's uh, I'll, I'll, let me mention some of those numbers. They say that across the dozens of U.S. cities in 2018 that had the scooters there was 38.5 million trips taken during this study period in particular just in Austin Texas there was 182,000 hours of e-scooter use 891,000 miles ridden and about 936,000 scooter trips taken so that is a lot you're right that's a lot more people than just the the headline would suggest there Let's talk a little bit more in depth about the specific injuries. They said about half of the injured riders reported sustaining a severe injury. What does a severe injury mean? They were
2: categorizing it as like a torn ligament, loss of blood. Like we mentioned before, a head injury, broken bones would be filed under that as well. It's not just falling and skinning your knee or or skinning your elbow necessarily, or even spraining a wrist. It's a significant number of people that are having to check into hospitals, essentially, after taking a spill off of one of these.
0: I live in Los Angeles. And there are a ton of these e-scooters everywhere. One of the funny parts of the study was how much of a factor alcohol plays into some of these. And I can tell you from experience that, yeah, people are getting boozed up, leaving a bar. And they said a third of respondents acknowledged saying they they drank alcohol before riding some of these scooters?
2: I interviewed one of the co-founders of Lime, which is one of the major scooter operators yep. recently, and he told me that they're working on a technology that are trying to embed in their scooters a type of sort of gyroscope that could detect when a rider is inebriated or, oh, or drunk.
0: Last question I have, because cities across the country are starting pilot programs for these things. Local legislatures are passing laws to try to regulate some of these things. Bird Electric Scooters, uh, in particular, one of the companies They are offering scooters for $25 a month now in case you want to keep one longer term. What's the future of the e-scooter?
2: It's going to be more regulation. I think the cities, after getting caught with their pants down a little bit in the initial stage, Santa Monica amongst them, and LA as well, I think they're really starting to catch up. and It's it's nice to see local governments passing legislation and permitting processes to sort of really monitor the situation and make sure it's being deployed in a safe and responsible way. These are tech companies. You know, The whole ethos is to seek forgiveness rather than permission. they were taught by Uber and Lyft at the beginning that that was the way to do it. You come in, you scale up really, really big and you get everyone excited and, and interested in it. And then... At that point, you know, the cities are, are sort of just left to kind of like watch it happen. I think the cities have, have really caught on at this point, and they're doing a much better job at sort of keeping a mindful hand on the whole industry. And I'd like to see that moving forward, because as we can see from this study, people continue to be injured by these products. It's going to be a huge issue, not just for the companies themselves, but for the cities as well, because those are costs associated with emergency room visits and loss of productivity, loss of life. And that's that's a bad look for everybody.
0: Right. Bottom line, try to be careful. And if you can, wear that helmet, because it's important. Wear helmet. Absolutely. <laughs> Andrew Hawkins, transportation reporter at The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me. It was great. Now there's this hashtag that the teams have to use to post and to get that discount. When you go through that hashtag, you just see like Americana, you know, yeah, people with Starbucks and doing peace signs and just Modeling their clothes essentially for them, so that's really great free advertising.
0: Joining us now is Jordan Holman, retail reporter for Bloomberg News. We're going to be talking about the future of retail, the future of the American mall. If millennials tried to kill the American mall, Generation Z might be the ones to save it. We're going through this whole period right now where you can go across the country and see various storefronts inside of the malls that are just empty. These uh, big anchor stores that used to be the mainstays of malls like Sears, JCPenney's. They're having a lot of trouble keeping their customers and a lot of new businesses aren't wanting to get into the malls. But Everybody's kind of changing it up, and Generation Z might be the ones to bring it back. Tell us a little bit about this.
3: Generation Z, those are the 7 to 22-year-olds who actually really love the mall. So there's a stat that says 95% of them went to the mall in the past three months, which is so much higher than millennials and their Gen X parents. And so the whole idea of the mall dying isn't really the case for Generation Z. They see it as a novelty to go into a mall. You have all these different stores, but what is different is like, like their relationships with the stores once they go there.
0: With the rise of online shopping, I think a lot of Generation X and millennials in particular, they took to it right away. It's like, oh, man, I don't have to go anywhere. I can just use my phone, my computer and have it delivered to me. And the Generation Z is using a combination of it. And you can see it all over the place in the retail industry, especially with places like Walmart, who... You can do a lot of your online shopping and still go to the store and pick it up. There's this kind of balance, this combination of online and physical. So a lot of what the Generation Z kids are doing right now, they're coming into, they're buying prominence right now. They're having money. They're going and shopping on their own. They're spending a lot of time on their smartphones, and b- these businesses are actually tailoring to that. One in particular is Forever 21, which I think is doing something so smart. They're offering in-store discounts to people who are posing and posting on their Instagrams pictures of themselves you know, wearing certain clothes, and then you get like a 21% discount in the store. I, I think that's just so smart. It serves two purposes, the discounts for the customer and then free marketing for the company.
3: Totally. And like Forever 21 sets a mainstay of like teens wardrobe, right? And they know that their shoppers are already going to be on their phone. So they just surrendered to that. What's really cool about that is that now there's this hashtag that the teens have to use to post and to get that discount. And so when you go through that hashtag, you just see like Americana, you know, people with Starbucks and doing peace signs and just modeling their clothes essentially for them. So that's really great free advertising. Some other brands really popular with teens have also done that as well and so that's one way that using that in-store experience to really click with some of the teams. and Instagram is a huge element to why teens like the mall still so Macy's has their story idea which is the shop and shop and it's basically a theme every two months and it has all these Instagram worthy things so there's like a huge Crayola wall in the New York store and like a light bright wall so basically if you can wrap in Instagram an app that like these are already living on within your store, that's how you're going to
0: win. One of the stats you had was 91% of Gen Z shoppers are searching for details on their mobile phones while they're inside retail locations. And I've done this multiple times because you're like, well, let me see what I can get. What kind of, <laughs> you know, is there a coupon or something, anything to get a deal? Because obviously everybody is shopping with that in the back of their head. What's the deal I can get for this? And what they're doing in Macy's, they're keeping their retailers and the customers on their feet by switching this thing out constantly. It's a different theme every few weeks or every month or so. Uh, and I love the way one of these executives at Macy's describes it. Uh, you know, they're filling a lot of this stuff with items that nobody needs, but that they're going to want, you know, cute little tchotchkes and knickknacks and, you know, hot dog shaped pet toys, all the little fun, cute things that you want to take pictures with and buy. But You know, you really don't need it. You didn't know you needed it until you saw it there. And that's how they're revitalizing these certain sectors.
3: They definitely design that area with Gen Z in mind. And I think that's another element to this. You really have to think about how they're different as teenagers than millennials in Gen X before them. They think differently. They are different apps and whatnot. So you need to just, you know, design around them.
0: Jordan Holman, retail reporter for Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.